first, a word from our sponsor, Film Movement Plus, a streaming service for fans of independent and foreign film, delivers a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best movies from prestigious festivals around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are acclaimed films you won't find anywhere else, plus newly restored classics and award-winning shorts with new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But Watch With Jen listeners can get a 14-day free trial, plus 30% off their annual subscription using the promo code GEN30. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today, we're welcoming back my lovely friend and a guest from the very first season of Watch with Jen, Courtney Howard, a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic and journalist who writes for Variety and Fresh Fiction TV. Courtney is a member of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, as well as Critics' Choice and the Online Film Critics Society. Courtney, it is so good to have you here again. I know we chatted about you coming back last season, but time got away from us. So I'm very excited you're here now. How are you doing and how's 2022 treating you so far? (laughs) I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm so excited to be here today and talk about three films that I really, really love and have loved throughout the decades and stuff. And a couple that don't get their... uh, dues as for their like critical I don't know uh dues as far as uh respect goes so I'm True. happy to, to uh sort of prop them up and uh tell everybody why I like these movies but 2022 is <laughs> going okay so far okay good yeah I'm glad to have you here to set the record straight on a few of these very excited I know this is such a crazy time of year, as in December, we have award season voting and putting together our lists of favorites for the year. And then January starts up and people are planning for Sundance and covering the Guild Awards. So how about you? What have you been working on lately? Um, I just did a piece for Variety uh, talking about the sort of women of award season. Um, So that's going to be coming out at some point uh in the future uh near future um so yes i'm very familiar with all of the awards movies all of the chatter i've seen basically everything um mm-hmm. so it's nice to also have these three light films that we're going to discuss yes. <laughs> uh in the mix to sort of decompress from some of the more heavier films that we've been watching um like you know and loving like lost daughter and the power of the dog and absolutely um, yeah uh, a lot of those sorts of films so it's good yeah it is so good I always look forward to I mean I love covering any subject with whatever my guests want to talk about on this podcast but I get really excited when I get to break up the, you know, real heavy award films or, you know, the heavy classics, the great epics, the crime movies that are 
full of drama. I love them just as much as any movie lover. But it's so much fun to talk about comedies and some of the the lighter fare that we have. So I'm very excited. But before we dive into that, are there any overlooked favorites from last year that you'd want to encourage everyone to check out? Good question. So I wind up doing like, in addition to like a, I usually wind up keeping a running track of movies throughout the year, uh, my best of my worst of, and then I usually do like an unsung heroes. So movies that I've enjoyed that aren't going to necessarily like, you know, aren't setting, not necessarily setting the world on fire, but (laughs) aren't really getting their dues. So I can at least look back on those and think, Oh, those were really good. Or maybe I want to watch this again. Yeah. Um, So just fun, light stuff. Like, Nobody I thought was great. That was a great action film. Um, Till Death is on Netflix. And okay. it's just a simple sort of home invasion uh, from a feminist perspective, uh, you know, sort of uh, film and uh, starring Megan Fox. And it starts out a little shaky, but once it gets into it, you're like really plugged in. And I think it's about 90 minutes long. So it's really swift and really eases you through things. So I enjoyed that thoroughly. Um, uh, And what else have I liked? Um, Jolt, which is on Prime Video. Okay. Starring, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on her name? Um, Kate Beckinsale. Okay. Uh, She looks great in this film. And there's some twists that are predictable and stuff, but it's just a fun action just a fun action movie that you can sort of disconnect from the world and sort of get enveloped in this other world. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've liked. Um, St. Maud is a weird, like unnerving Mm -hmm. horror film. Um, I've really liked, we'll get to one of the ones that I liked a lot when we talk about one of the films. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So that'll sort of get into some things as as to like what are they doing now, sort of a thing. Um, (laughs) To be continued is what we're saying to everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so and there's and there were some other stuff that I caught up on that were, I think, technically from the year prior. Stuff like lapses and the Kid Detective. I think was released. Oh, that was a very good film. Yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that, like I caught up on. So, and that I really, 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 really loved and recommend. So there's those two. So those are a little more offbeat from the standard. Like, I mean, obviously I think everybody should sit down and watch the power of the dog, but (laughs) yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, that brings us to today's discussion of a topic I think neither one of us had in mind at the start, but as we threw out movies to cover, it just naturally evolved into something that I think is a whole lot of fun. So I'm really looking forward to it, both in the same age bracket of Gen Xers who vividly remember seeing all three of these movies and also recall this subgenre which was everywhere in the late 1980s and early 90s and helped no doubt in its popularity by a certain smash success young adult series written by Ann M. Martin, 
around the same time. Today, Courtney and I are holding an informal meeting of a cinematic and much more mature babysitters club. So (laughs) (laughs) undoubtedly kicked off years earlier in Mr. Mom. We're tackling the big year of 1987 for both babysitting on screen and the adult Disney production house of Touchstone Pictures. Give it up, everyone, with one of our childhood favorites, Adventures in Babysitting, which opened just before Independence Day, and also the American remake of a French comedic hit that hit screens in time for Thanksgiving with Three Men and a Baby. After that, we're going to jump ahead a few years for another teen favorite from the era in the form of 1991's Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dead. Obviously, there are plenty of other films in this comedy subgenre as well, Baby Boom, Uncle Buck, Mrs. Doubtfire, and of course, classics like Houseboat and Mary Poppins, and even one of my favorites, Bachelor Mother from the 1930s. And I'm sure we'll reference a ton of these movies along the way. But I really love this generation-specific trio. So before we go into these films one by one, I'd love to hear from you, Courtney, about any thoughts you might have about this theme and the popularity of this subgenre overall. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that sort of this gave rise to the babysitters genre or, uh, you know, just from a social societal perspective, like what's going on in the country at this time? Like, how are we feeling politically? Like what's Mm -hmm. going on in the homes of everybody? I think it's all really reflective of that, especially when it comes to studio executives, greenlining projects like these and thinking, oh, this is going to touch on something not necessarily in the zeitgeist but something that's happening in their home always comes up when that's why things get greenlit so like (laughs) if you see a lot of influx of dad's failing movies that's because the studio executives feel like they're failing their families at home so Mm -hmm. that's what they're they're interested in yeah yeah so so it's stuff like that so I think a lot of this is feeling like Maybe from a psychological perspective, I'm sort of, you know, from my armchair psychology days, I feel like um, this is sort of reflective of like, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of single parents and leaving their kids at home and. Yeah, latchkey kids. And yeah. Both parents working during the Reagan years. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's a lot of that and dealing with that and sort of feeling like, are we capable enough to like you know, do we have the skills? And for all three of these, I think their common tie is, you know, these people who sort of not necessarily doubt themselves, but feel this need to, you know, be in control at all times and get destabilized, but then all rise to the challenge and meet that challenge in, you know, specific and interesting ways that, spoke to me as you know an 11 as a tween at the time where I felt especially don't tell mom and adventures and babysitting like spoke to me as far as like oh you're a capable you're a capable woman it's nice to see yes film sort of reflecting how you should be too Mm -hmm. so there's that and it also like just the babysitting angle like I was a babysitter I was going to ask you that yeah (laughs) so I had two younger brothers and so I was like the default babysitter of the house but I also had you know clients where I would go and babysit and 
I loved the babysitters club books. Like I read those religiously and I had a kid kit that I made, which is like, yes, you know, the, the boxes, yeah. yeah, the boxes that had like activities and crafts and stuff like that. And so, um, in the days where we would babysit for, I was just trying to think what my going rate was. And I think it was like 13, $14, which is like a steal now compared to oh, like wow. what parents pay for babysitting. Um, but yeah, so like all of these things sort of appealed to me and that's why I feel like, oh, this reflects my my current struggles. <laughs> yes, feeling so overwhelmed and then trying to realize, no, you are the one in control of, mm-hmm. of these kids and you have to, you know, keep cool. I was recruited into babysitting at a really young age. Um, in my house, I had an older brother, that was it. But um, do you remember the D.A.R.E. program in school? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, my dear officer actually realized I lived one street away from them. Mm-hmm. And so out of the blue, like tracked down my number and called uh, my parents and was like, you know, does she babysit? My parents were like, I, I don't know. I guess she could. Well, she's very <laughs> mature. And so I like went down the hill and all of a sudden I'm watching like I'm the neighborhood babysitter for the, the local cops and uh, they had very <laughs> rowdy kids. And then all the kids from the block came over. And so suddenly at like age 10, I had like 11 kids in my care. So wow, pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I was, I remember bringing some of these movies over to show kids like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, over the years, I remember bringing adventures and babysitting and then don't tell mom and, yeah. Three Men and a Baby, I think, was also a favorite from the era. I remember watching mm-hmm. that at sleepovers. So, yeah, this is just movies we remember. Very much in our wheelhouse. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, kicking things off, we have the feature filmmaking debut of Spielberg and John Hughes's protege, Chris Columbus, with the 1987 film Adventures in Babysitting, which was written by David Simpkins and produced by Linda Opes and Deborah Hill, who was one of Courtney's old bosses. It is a sweet yet decidedly daring and provocative teen comedy about a 17-year-old suburban babysitter who, along with the kids in her care, find themselves in harm's way in sort of a teenage version of Scorsese's After Hours when they get stranded while trying to rescue a friend in trouble in downtown Chicago. The film is anchored by a terrific charm attack of a performance by Elizabeth Shue as the hardworking yet unlucky put upon babysitter and nice turns by Keith Coogan, Anthony Rapp and Maya Bruton as her mischievous charges. And it also features a knockout soundtrack as well as some live bluesy performances, including one called Babysitting Blues by Shu and the Kids That Rules. And although the Shu has said it's like one of her favorite experiences ever. Of course, like a majority of 80s teen comedies, there are some things that don't really sit well in 2021 involving the tossing around of the word homo as an insult, the whole weird playboy doppelganger idea, as well as the fact that a lot of the car thieves and gangbangers uh, that these lily white upper middle class suburban kids encounter are minorities, some of which became a little contentious when I went viral for tweeting about the film. 
and sharing that in the overly sanitized Disney Plus version, they changed its most iconic line from don't fuck with the babysitter to don't fool with the babysitter. Needless to say, don't stream it there. Keep your DVDs, everyone. But despite some of its dated references and caricatures, I love it. And I love Shu's journey from a nice, albeit 17-year-old pushover to independent and strong. Plus, I believe its heart is in the right place. And it is still so much fun. But enough for me, Courtney. Please tell me your thoughts. So I, too, love a lot of the things about this movie that you've just highlighted. And also... definitely keep in mind (laughs) uh, things that haven't aged so well Um, but uh, I had seen a a Q&A they had done a double feature of Don't Tell Mom and Adventures in Babysitting a while ago at the American Cinematheque at the Egyptian here like a couple years ago and they had the uh, writer of Adventures in Babysitting Keith Coogan who was a masterful storyteller like if you could get him on a podcast, you really should because he's oh, really great that. at telling stories and he's got a wealth of them too. Yeah, um, he's in two of our says, movies. Yeah, yeah, he's in two of our movies, so he can very much speak from experience. <laughs> um, and uh, I think uh, I think Maya Bruton was there, I'm pretty sure. Oh, nice. Um, so I think all three of them were there. And so I have some details. Ooh. I wrote it up as like a little piece of 19 things you didn't know about Adventures in Babysitting. Wow. And I tried to keep it. Ooh. I'm going to have to stuff. link to that. Send it to Yeah. Me. So, yeah, you'll have to link to that. So I'll talk about a little bit some of those things that they talked about. The sure. um, stuff that hasn't aged well, at least for one thing. Uh, I noticed rewatching it on, I of course own the Blu-ray. I've owned like every single version of this movie as it's come out. So VHS, (laughs) DVD and Blu-ray, the 25th anniversary edition, which really doesn't have any bells or whistles on it, but it's just, you know, a Blu-ray. And then, yeah, yeah. upgrade. Mm-hmm. So I watched it. I wound up watching it, just streaming it to see if anything else had changed. And they actually had dubbed over the uh, Thor's a. This is the quote oh. from the movie. So I'm yeah. not being not being a bigot. Uh, <laughs> Thor's, Thor's a homo. Mm-hmm. So in the dubbed one, they said Thor's a weirdo. So oh, gotcha. not all changes are bad, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the writer David Simpkin. So. David Simpkins now does regret that derogatory line about Thor. Sure. Yeah. So there's, he had said at the time, uh, he said, there's a few things that break my heart. Brad calling Thor a homo. That's a tough one for me now that hurts a little bit. So yeah. he does regret putting that in there, but you know, it, it is the eighties not to excuse anything, but I know. You know. Yeah. Even uh, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure has lines like that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I was just watching uh, Teen Wolf for the first time in its entirety the other night. And there's like a whole thing that is just so casual. The sort yeah, of it was so bigotry casual just, then. <laughs> it, it was just like, um, excuse what? <laughs> like even at the time, I felt like that's too much. Like I never said that. I never went around saying no, that as a tweet. I know, yeah, exactly. Wild. Um, so, uh, that sort of stuff, uh, you know, David regrets at this point, but the movie has gone through like so many changes. So I guess just a little bit of history that I had learned about this, you know, seeing that Q and a, the, uh, David Simpkins, uh, had 
he was working for Roger Corman's company at the time, New World yes, Pictures, and he I wound up that. writing. Yeah, he wound up writing this on spec, and somehow the script went from friend to friend to friend, and it wind, finally found its way to Linda and Deborah Hill, the producers, mm-hmm. and he wrote it really fast. Uh, he like it didn't need to be perfect; it just needed to be sort of solid. So he wound up getting that to them. And originally it also had some sort of a heist element to it. Oh, wow. Uh, which is weird. <laughs> um, oh, I would love hearing. to read that script, the original one. Yeah. yeah. So there was, a, if, if that's even out there, like a yeah. lot of these scripts have sort of vanished from everywhere. Like you can't find them anywhere True. anymore. Like nobody digitized them. Like my mm-hmm. husband was just going through a thing where he wound up having a script that even the screenwriter didn't have anymore. And it was like of a pretty big titled movie. And he was like, I don't know how I have this and you don't, but I'll digitize it for you and send it over. Oh, that's Um, nice. Yes. So with this, like there was a heist element, but then the uh, Deborah and Linda's intern at the time is Stacey Cher, which I don't know if you know who she is. Oh, yes, of course. um, Yeah. Big time producer, Jersey, um, Jersey films. Yep. Um, so she was their intern at the time and she said she got it to them and, you know, Linda and Deborah had said to David, you know, we're not doing this high stuff. It's just too expensive. It's too crazy. Yeah. And so that's how it just became just about what we see today. Um, so yeah, I, thought- I heard it was originally going to be at Paramount. They had first refusal and they mm. wanted Molly Ringwald, I guess. And um, I don't know if they ran that by uh, Linda and Deborah, and that didn't mm-hmm. fly or what, but they, yeah, they looked for over 150 actresses who auditioned and good old uh, Elizabeth Shue was a Harvard um, student at the time and auditioned. I mean, she'd done like the karate kid by that point, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think they found the perfect person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's all true to the thing about Molly Ringwald. Like yeah. they thought like Deborah and Linda thought, okay, great. Slam dunk. <laughs> and then <laughs> Molly wind up, wound up saying no. And then they were like, oh my God, what do we do? Yeah. Um, by Valerie that point, Bur- she was probably a little tired of the teen movies probably. Yeah. Yeah. Valerie Bertinelli, Valerie Bertinelli and Phoebe Cates also screen tested for the babysitter yes. part as well. Um, and let's see. And Keith Coogan in the auditioning process, he wound up swapping roles with Anthony Rapp. So. Oh, they, cool. Okay. Yeah. So Coogan was like, he, he was had said, Daryl. Yeah. Yeah. So they were like, they sort of, I don't know, wound up switching the parts. And I had also had read somewhere, which I'm not sure is true or not. I think it was on IMDb. So this one might not be true Okay, gotcha. about Anthony Rapp is naturally blonde. And because the produce, because either the producers or somebody thought he would be too lookalike to Anthony Michael Hall. So they told him he needed to dye his hair red so that's why he has red hair in the movie oh gotcha okay so that's another little fact that i learned but i don't know if that is true or not but we'll go with the lore on that we'll print the legend (laughs) yeah there you go it's more interesting that way Mm yeah yeah and the 
big thing that I noticed this time, and I sort of went down a rabbit hole. What's so funny is like, you know, when we watched these movies in 1987, there obviously was no IMDb. There's not a lot of like resources where you could go, like you could go to the library and look it up on a microfiche. Maybe if you knew how to do like a rabbit hole trail um, Mm -hmm. of like, information and being overwhelmed with that but like it's nice now because like I don't know about you but I get stopped watching these older movies these movies that I've seen a zillion times like I'll have to pause it and I'll be like oh I wonder what happened to this person or I do the I wonder, same thing I'm I wonder the worst what, yeah yeah I wonder what this means I wonder what you know like I'll even go through credits and like examine the credits of did this person become anything or like, where is this person now? And, oh, why look at those thank yous. Like what do, what do those thank yous mean? So this time around, I I had noticed that um, Chris Columbus's thanks, Chris Columbus thanks one of his teachers at NYU. And um, I think that teacher, I might be extrapolating here because I didn't never talk to Chris Columbus about this. Um, the guy was, uh, he co-produced Scorsese's first film. And I thought it was interesting, the Scorsese connection, because they also use Gimme Shelter in Adventures in Movie City. Yes, they do. Yeah. So, and that was one of the first times I had heard Gimme Shelter used in a movie, not a Scorsese movie. (laughs) Um, yeah. And they also, just like Scorsese's Goodfellas, they also use Then He Kissed Me, but this was far before... This was years before Goodfellas came out. This was like three years before Goodfellas came out. So Adventures in Babysitting actually was there before anybody had used it. Even the pickup artist, which came out, I think, later that year, like a couple months later. Mm-hmm. So there's my Scorsese connections. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Was it? Um, oh, boy. I'm looking at some of the early ones. Was Was it a producer on like Who's that knocking on my door or Mean Streets or? It was uh, Haig. I can't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Haig Manugian oh, okay. was the teacher at NYU. And he's oh, specifically cool. thanked in the credits. And Stacey Sher is also thanked in the, oh, in the thank you that. in the credits too. Um, yeah. So I do the same I, thing. I yeah. am the worst, especially if I'm watching like a movie on TCM. Uh, I'll like have to pause it and look up all the actresses and the actors, what happened to them? What was their story? And yeah, I get really fascinated by, I mean, sometimes I'll make it through if I'm completely compelled by the film. And then at the end, like I'm going down every rabbit hole. My other favorite thing to do is look up the contemporaneous uh, film reviews Mm -hmm. for for the movie. And so I was doing that on Adventures in Babysitting. And Mm. why um, Matt Solarzeitz has this funny thing he says about how everyone in 2022 or the modern era likes to think that they're the first people to notice things like, you know, some of the the racial insensitivity of the film and that kind of thing. And so when I looked back, it was actually Elvis Mitchell before he was with the New York Times. He was with the Detroit Free Press. And so he was pointing out the fact that, you know, as he was writing it, um, it's a movie where like white suburban kids are kind of told, like, stay out of the city. It's too dangerous. Stay in the womb of um, suburbia because he said, you know, most of the people were um, black And Mm -hmm. so that was interesting because all I did was share the line change on um, Twitter and it kind of led to people 
commenting on the movie and it's always good to you know read everyone's thoughts but I thought that was interesting and another example of the fact that just because you notice it today it doesn't mean that people didn't notice it before Mm -hmm. so I thought that was really valid um, with adventures and babysitting and it was also just really fun to be able to look back and see that you know, the cast members still th- think so fondly of the film. Uh, Linda Opes replied to one of my, I think it was somebody quote tweeted me and she replied and explained about the use of fuck in the movie. She said she took it to the MPAA and fought for those. And she won on the basis of them being quote unquote tandem fucks. Somebody said, yes. don't fuck with yeah the Lords of Hell. And she, she just replies the exact Thing, but don't fuck with the babysitter and yeah that's how it it managed to fly and i thought that was very cool yeah that's what's so tragic about it being lost in the yeah um, streaming streaming version the disney plus version is because they fought so hard she and deborah fought so hard for this yes. and like we do need to preserve artist rights when it comes to that like yeah. they weren't thinking about any of this in like 1987 like there wasn't even like <laughs> pay-per-view you know what I mean no. like so there was none of this around so like there's none of these like protections up like I'm sure they had like they had to do air like quote-unquote airline versions or sanitize tv mm-hmm. versions but that shouldn't be a factor on streaming at least that's in my perspective I don't think it should be um yes I, I remember seeing it on television as a girl and it was don't fool with the babysitter so it's kind of like we went back to tv in like 1990 that version and the other line I remember as a girl was um you know sit down in the movie it's sit down bitch and on tv it was sit down but they they screwed it up it was witch but they left mm-hmm. the b sound so it was like witch and i still remember <laughs> like all the kids uh, my brother all the neighborhood kids would love to say that line like sit down witch you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's exactly what we heard um i love the use of blues in this movie mm-hmm. uh i think albert collins is just such a masterful Uh, guitar player and musician in his own right and it's so wonderful that they were able to sort of incorporate this like blues scene and that wasn't originally in the original draft like they added that later yeah um in the filmmaking so uh but even the like the writing of the babysitter's blues song like this is where I also went down another hole and had to pause the scene I couldn't like just re-watch it a billion times although I do love the song so much um the lyrics are by the same songwriter who wrote Crush from Jennifer Page oh really um, and the DuckTales and Rescue Rangers theme songs no way um, so I love he wrote the lyrics songs those are the lyric like he wrote the lyrics to those and um Robert Kraft did the music for Babysitter's Blues, uh, and he was the executive in charge of uh, music on Who's the Boss, and also the more modernized version of Adventures in Babysitting, modernized and inferior version of Adventures in Babysitting, The Sitter. I have not seen it. Oh, oh, The Sitter. 
Oh, I thought you meant the the remake. The remake. I did watch the remake, the Disney Channel remake, and it's fine, but it's not nearly as (laughs) it's not nearly as iconic as this. And you know, beloved. Like, if I were to choose between watching the remake and this, for me, it's watching this. But they do, you know, obviously, there's none of that. Oh my God, there's black people. Like, there's none of that around in the remake. So (laughs) it's a little, you know, it's a little softer and like, yeah, it's a little better that way. So they do right some wrongs there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it is cool. Albert Collins is amazing. And when I was uh, reading about the film over on the AFI, uh, website they had this cool section where it said that at the time like after that Elvis Mitchell review came out Albert Collins manager like put together a letter on behalf of him and Collins that they thought that the movie depicted race in a positive light because a uh, black blues singer was the one that protected the protagonist from pursuers mm-hmm. and then he also pointed out something I didn't even realize he said how cool it was or Collins thought especially that the filmmakers hired him and a backing band made up of what he's calling real Chicago blues musicians instead Mm -hmm. of actors. So I thought that is true. And you also get um, the one at the frat party is also terrific. Uh, Singer songwriter Southside Johnny Lyon is Mm -hmm. in there. I love those songs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you look closely, you'll see Elizabeth Shue dancing. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So, so she's in that scene. And so is her brother, her brother, Andrew Shue is also in that scene (laughs) as one of the frat boys. Amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Ah, so good. Oh, and then as far as there's other family members hidden throughout the movie too, Anthony Rapp's brother plays one of the gang members on the L train. Oh, cool. And Deborah's parents, I think her dad is the one. Let me look this up quite right. Hang on just a second. I had it on my sure. list here. Uh, yeah. The subway clerk is Deborah Hill's dad. The guy who yells out, someone's got to pay for those kids. Oh, gotcha. Oh, that's I, such a good line too. And I think Linda's parents are on the subway train to or on the L as well. Um, but I'm not sure, but I I know they're, I think they're in the movie too. Um, and I believe my husband was telling me that he thought that too, that was one of the stories he had heard. Um, the other fun story with this movie too, the scene after the blues club and when they're walking down on their way to the frat party. Um, and I think, or maybe it was just an alleyway. One of the scenes um, it was supposed to be they're walking along a trash like covered alley, but the Toronto sanitation department had already come and picked up all the trash. So the alley that they were going to shoot at wasn't nearly as scummy as they needed it to be. So they had to go around the city and collect random trash to throw there, oh, wow. throw it back there. So I thought that was funny. That was a little harrowing tale of filmmaking there you go on the fly yeah on the fly oh my gosh and the cast in this is ridiculous I mean Mm -hmm. I think Anthony Rapp is marvelous he kind of steals every scene he's in 
But I also love, I mean, looking back, Penelope Ann Miller as Brenda <laughs> the Friend. Uh, you got Bradley Whitford as the worst boyfriend ever. Such so a, cool. Yes, <laughs> so cool. Or the license plate on the car, so cool. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. so cool. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Lolita Davidovich is Luann, mm-hmm. who we meet at the frat party. I also really liked George Newbern. This was before he was in mm-hmm. you know, Father of the Bride. Um, really good as the dreamy uh, college student at the frat party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Vincent D'Onofrio. Uh, yes. You know, wearing the wig, the blonde. Vincent D'Onofrio as Dawson, who may or may not be Thor, which is very cool. Um, yeah. It's just such a fun movie. Yeah. I, for me, Penelope Ann Miller steals the show like each time. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a perfectly it was her- good check. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm going to spike her tab with Drano. It's such an <laughs> iconic 80s line um, that I, know, I don't know that the Heathers kids era. would understand these yeah. days, the kids. Yeah. Um, but it was her debut. And I think she did such a marvelous job. And I love her purple, giant purple glasses and her hair all teased and these giant like gold earrings. Brent is a fashion icon as far as I'm concerned. You know, that's a good point about the glasses. They were huge back then. I had mm-hmm. like um, oversized blue ones and red ones and burgundy ones that kind of looked like Brenda's mm-hmm. yeah, that was the time yep. yeah I had giant clear ones like that and they were specifically like a mix of Brenda and Kelly Martin's on life goes on which is a little <gasps> bit later I think oh in my the god time things, I love that show yeah they're gonna remake that too they're, they're gonna do they're rebooting it with Kelly Martin's character I just read this like yesterday and I was like oh my god wow (laughs) that's crazy all right so back on subject (laughs) um adventures in babysitting you pointed out the the name a night on the town in certain countries it was called that you had a poster that was hilarious was it was from the UK was that right that's what it that's what IMDb said. So I'm taking it as the truth there. Yes, so. What a weird title, very beige. I think uh, Adventures in Babysitting is much cooler and it kind of goes to the Thor angle a little bit, I think. Yeah. It's much more, I think, tells you what it is. And I think yes. that was also a good trend of the 80s of like, there's the premise right there. Adventures yeah. and babysitting. And yes. like you said, this was very much envisioned to be an after hours, but for kids. Yeah. Um, and I like that it shows them again as being capable of handling like all of these problems, these logistical problems, and they're not inept. They know what they're doing, they get away with it. There's like very little damage at the end of the night. They all had a great time. They've all grown and learned something too. Um you yeah, know. they're smarter than the adults realize, and that's yeah, important. and like Chris, Chris stands up to her for herself, like mm-hmm. with her jerk boyfriend. Yeah, uh, that goes out with Sesame Plexer. <laughs> She's yes. such a sleaze, <laughs> such a sleaze. Yes, <laughs> yeah, um, he gets an easy chick like that, and she gets a night of hell, as the movie says. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, it's. It's so fun. Um, are there any other thoughts you want to add on adventures and babysitting before we move on? Um, I think that's about it that I have on adventures and babysitting. Um, okay. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. But I think yes. that's, I think we got to get, oh, the other, the other thing I thought was interesting is that 
it wasn't always Thor in the script as far as Sarah's idol worship. Yeah. Yeah. So they also went through, that went through a few uh, uh, different iterations. So originally she had a crush on Dan Rather, the news. Oh God. (laughs) I'm glad they changed that. Yeah. (laughs) And then they changed it. And then they changed it to her having a crush on the Chicago bears the entire football team and you Jeffrey know, around Katzen. this time. I, I lived in Chicago mm. uh, around that time or a suburb. Oh, they Chicago. were huge. The bears huge. won the super bowl. We had the super bowl shuffle record. Was that yeah. five bears, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And so Jeffrey Katzenberg is the one who said, <laughs> no, he says, no, in 10 minutes, nobody will remember them, which but, I beg to differ. Everybody yeah. remembers the super bowl shuffle, please. Yeah, we're still um, talking about it today. I come mean, on. <laughs> like, I don't follow sports and I still know the Super Bowl. Exactly. Shuffle. I don't watch the NFL, but I remember that record. Yes. And then they then they started landing on comic book characters. So they tried to get Spider-Man first. That was their big push. Uh, and Marvel said no. Uh, and then finally, Marvel came to them and said, we've got this Thor guy. Just take him and use him. You can do whatever you want with him. So okay. they got the one <laughs> of the litter with him, uh, quote from, from David. So yeah. So that's how Thor got in. <laughs> that is so funny. And how ironic that, you know, it's Disney and all these years later, Disney owns it. You pointed mm-hmm. out movies about um, kids being capable. Of course, Chris Columbus, uh, this was like a modest hit. I think a much bigger one. It became a cult favorite on, on video, but um, you know, years later, Chris Columbus made the ultimate, Hey, the kid is smarter than we realize movie with home alone. Mm-hmm. So it's and they also Chris, the, uh, hitting the lawn jockey gag, uh, yeah. in home alone oh my was God, birthed in this. That. Yeah. Yeah. So that was birthed in this. So there's another little home alone connection. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as Courtney said, this was the era where good titles told you exactly what to expect. So we're moving on to that. Next, we have the biggest box office hit of 1987, one that was even bigger than that year's other smash, Fatal Attraction. It's a film about three guys badly in need of a child rearing book by Dr. Spock. And it's a movie that was directed by Spock, real name Leonard Nimoy, Three Men and a Baby. It was an American remake of the 1985 French comedy, Three Men and a Cradle, written and directed by Colleen Serrault. Three Men and a Baby was so successful, it not only spawned the sequel, Three Men and a Little Lady, but it also led to six additional remakes as well in its own right. Obviously, babysitting movies are big business. That's what we're here today to tell you. Tom Selleck and Steve Gutenberg star as two bachelor roommates who find their carefree lifestyle interrupted when the love child of their third roommate, an actor played by Ted Danson, is left on their doorstep when Danson is out of the country on a job. While they struggle to care for the baby, Things get even more complicated when, again, by way of one of Danson's friends, they find themselves in the middle of a drug sting as well. Of course, it's then that Danson returns and they must figure out what to do about all of it. Weirdly released the same fall that the TV show My Two Dads premiered, but perhaps an influence on Full House, among others. This film, in my eyes, still plays like gangbusters because... 
of its leads, treating the most preposterous scenes with the utmost of seriousness, whether that's when Selleck goes diaper and formula shopping, or he and Gutenberg freak out when a loud noise occurs at night that might wake up baby Mary. So what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, this was one of the ones that I hadn't seen nearly as many times as I had the other two. Yes. Um, even though I've seen this a hundred times, mm-hmm. um, mind you, this, I haven't seen it a thousand times. <laughs> so I went years. back and there was, yeah. yeah, in many years, I haven't watched this one. Uh, whereas the other two I've watched way more, uh, mm-hmm. recently. So it was nice to go back and rewatch this with sort of a little fresher eyes, yeah. um, and I had forgotten so much of this. I had forgotten the whole subplot with the heroine um, yes, and how zany crazy. that was. Um, but I loved how watching it this time as an adult versus watching it hundred times as a kid uh, was how they really incorporated the adapting screenwriters, uh, James Orr and Jim Cruikshank, which both of them had a long career at Touchstone Pictures. They seem to be like the guys to adapt. And I, I guess that's probably because this movie was so successful. Um, mm-hmm. They had a long career in just like working at Touchstone and making their own sort of original films too. Um, but I loved how they sort of build in the three actors like intense, all of them have this intense charisma and personalities. And they sort of put that into the characters where you really feel like, yes, you know, I would trust, you know, somebody, I would trust my baby with Tom Selleck because he seems Uh like the more responsible of the three bachelors. Yeah, the architect. (laughs) Yeah, and like Ted Danson is this like, you know, playboy, you know, charm factory you know and he's so silly Mm -hmm. and like funny so you can see how like women are just falling all over themselves for him and he has a little bit of depth there too when he wants to become a serious actor um but he's so good at the comedy um so and steve gutenberg is so great too because you feel like he is this you know he's the more put upon guy who's looking to sort of get in there with the ladies but I, I really enjoyed watching this, uh, you know, yeah, another, so another time. And the other thing that I had pointed that I had picked out this time was when Peter takes the baby to his girlfriend, Rebecca, and is like, here, you help. And she's like, why should I do this? Is it because I'm a woman? And uh, <laughs> that I, that doesn't mean I know what to do about babies. I thought that was such a crucial line. Like, cause there are a lot of women who just are expected, oh, well, you know, nature, you know, and a lot of us don't know what to do with babies. We're just as clueless as they are. Yeah. Um, 100%. So I thought, yeah. So I thought that was sort of an important little line to have in there as well. I think you made really excellent points there, especially when you brought up um, James Orr and Jim uh, Crookshank as being uh, two writers that did a lot of good work for Touchstone and Disney. They, to link it back to the film we just mentioned, uh, they wrote the script for Father of the Bride and Father of the Bride Part Two's and George Newbern was in that. So he was in uh, <laughs> uh, both of those. And then uh, Sister Act 2 as well. Also Mr. Destiny and Sister Act 2. Um, another one that I was just looking up um, because you put me down this rabbit hole, Courtney. So brilliant job. 
<laughs> wrote a TV movie called, or the story for it at least, called 14 Going on 30. Mm-hmm. And it has a plot that's very, very similar to um, to 13 Going on 30. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if uh, that may be, you know, where that came from. Very cool. Very good screenwriters. Um, I have not seen the French version of this film at all. I haven't either. I don't know that it ever, I remember at the time when this came out on mm-hmm. uh, VHS, I remember going to like the place that had all of the um, uh, non-English language speaking films, yeah. uh, the warehouse renting them, our local video store didn't care. It didn't have a, at the time it was called a foreign section, foreign film section but the warehouse did. So um, they only had so many, but I I was surprised that they never, I don't think they ever got the three men in a cradle. Cause I remember being very uh, like voraciously, like if it was a remake, I would see the original first or I would see it after and sort of do this comparison in my head. Um, Mm -hmm. But I never saw the original. So I don't know how it compares. Yeah, I know this was another, another, a uh, theme that we saw a lot, especially in the 80s and early 90s, is French movies being remade. Um, we had that with, especially the ones made by like Francis Weber with Pure Luck uh, was the remake, The Birdcage, uh, Three mm-hmm. Fugitives, uh, a bunch of those movies, uh, The Man with One Red Shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Father's Day was many years later. Not such a good picture. Oh, yikes. Yes. Yeah. I remember uh, my, seeing that in the theater. Yikes. Yeah. My Father the Hero. Wasn't yes. uh, Mrs. Doubtfire yes. was also, I think, based on a French movie. Colleen Sorrell, who is an actress turned director. She was going to be the one to direct the American remake. But it sounds like, according to AFI, she left the project for what they're dubbing health reasons. But it was most likely an issue of personality because they were noting that she unfortunately didn't get along with a lot of people. So then they brought Leonard Nimoy on and I think he showed a real uh, dexterity with comedy here and works so well with these actors. I really love, I mean, you have Tom Selleck doing his charismatic in control thing, but I also really love what Steve Gutenberg brings to this movie. It's a different energy. It's very funny. When I watched it this time, I was like, man, I would probably have gone for the Steve Gutenberg character of the three. And I think back in the 80s, they wanted you to be swooning for dancing in Selleck. So is that growth? I don't know, but it was a lot of fun. Yes. <laughs> I remember too, speaking to the whole, there's no internet. And so you only get so much information. I remember thinking until I saw her and I think it was the vanishing a little later, uh, thinking that Nancy Travis was British. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. You know, I can see that actually. because Yeah. <laughs> so, I, But I thought so, at least for a little while, I was like, I thought she was British. She really sold that accent to someone, to naive suburban me. <laughs> yeah, she did. Oh my gosh, so, I forgot I'm, about that movie. I'm sure all of your list, your British listeners would be like, no, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I know that happens. Yes, it, it's interesting. I'll be like, oh, I think the accent was impeccable. And they're like, Renee Zellweger cannot do the accent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, so that definitely happens. Do you remember the first time you might have seen Three Men and a Baby when you were a kid by any chance or like an early memory with the film? 
early memory. I I think I saw it with my neighbor who I saw basically a lot of like my formative films uh, with. So my next door neighbor and I were like really close. So we would go over to each other's house and watch movies and rent movies together and stuff like that. And so I think... And she also had a big screen TV and they had like a Betamax and they had the VHS, like they had the whole setup. So I seem to remember, I think I saw this one on VHS at her house. I don't think I saw it theatrically. I don't think I'm I not did sure. Either. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I know I saw Adventures in Babysitting theatrically because that was the one that made me want okay. to think oh, I want to be in the film industry. I want to do something in the film industry. I don't know what. And so somehow through happenstance, like years later, I wound up at Deborah Hill, interviewing at Deborah Hills for an internship. And I was like, holy cow, this is like, this is my my destiny. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as this one goes, like, I'm not sure where, whenabouts I saw it. I want to say it was VHS. I don't think I saw it theatrically, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't remember if I saw it theatrically or not, but I do have a funny memory of watching this. Uh, It was like my younger cousin's sleepover. And I went over there and I was a little bit older than the kids. So I wasn't having the most fun anyway. But they put on the movie, I think, to try to get the kids to like, you know, simmer down, essentially. And I was sitting there and it was around the scene where they couldn't figure out the diaper. uh, I think it was. And my uncle, uh, Ron, watched it and he just went, you know, these guys they can't figure out a diaper like what a bunch of assholes and (laughs) we're at a children's birthday party and so the kids (laughs) like there was this collective gasp from all the younger kids and then finally his eyes met mine and I laughed and I was just like yes they they are a bunch of assholes so I do remember feeling very mature watching three men and baby and and understanding that these men were idiots at the time. Uh, so yeah, that was my one early memory. I do remember seeing Three Men and a Little Lady theatrical. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I, I do remember yes. that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this one, I can't be certain if I did or not. I haven't watched the sequel as much at all as this one, but I do remember finding it pretty cute uh, at the time it came out. Do you remember your reaction to it at all? Yeah, I liked it. I actually wound up because I was watching this on Disney Plus and it was like, next to watch Little Lady. And I was like, <laughs> I haven't seen that in years. I should put that on um, just to see how my reaction differs. And I still found it like really charming and funny. It's a lot, I think it's a lot more uh, sitcom-y. Uh, and uh, funny and charming and cute Uh, you know they do the whole like adding a kid into the equation like a kid who can actually talk now into the equation so she's this precocious little girl um, who's adorable and makes your ovaries just like burst Um, (laughs) she's so cute and she says these lines like you know her big line is like what a crock and they're like hey where'd you learn that and then show smash cut to Peter on the phone saying what a crock Um, I remember that big scene and I owned the soundtrack too, because it's filled with two legitimate bangers, one by Madonna's 
uh, backup singer Donna DeLore, who also had a solo career of her own, uh, which opens the film, uh, the song that opens Little Lady, and the uh, Boy Meets Girl, Waiting for a Star to Fall, which closes the movie. So those were two big, like, early 90s, like, iconic songs for me, <laughs> dancing around my bedroom. But I do like speaking to the music in this one, I love that this one used like a, I would say a lot, but two Miami Sound Machine Miami songs. Sound Machine and they're, bad boy. they're both yes. great. Bad boy and uh, I think Conga is in there too. The party scene. Oh, is it? I don't know if I, I noticed that. Think That's it, awesome. I think it was Conga, but there was another one in there. I'll have to look it up as we're talking. There was another one in there, so I like that it used that. And I think we would be also remiss if we didn't talk about the very. Uh, uh, urban legend of they filmed this in an apartment and oh, a kid yeah. had died what a crazy uh, urban legend that was yeah so crazy but you know since it's like you know you're watching these things on degraded videotapes like it's all blurry and stuff mm-hmm. but with the advent of like digital it's much clearer now that you see it's actually not a child because this was filmed on a soundstage the interiors were filmed on a soundstage it's not a child. It's a clearly a cutout of yes. um, Jack uh, in a tuxedo. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> not a dead kid hiding in the background. Um, it would be a great story if it actually was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Then this movie would like be the one that gets played every Halloween, essentially. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the haunted three men and a baby. Uh, yeah. Yes. But it isn't. Um, so oh, we- and it. It is conga and oh, and the other song too. Yeah, the big legendary moment of this whole thing was them three, all three of them singing "Goodnight, Sweetheart" to Very the cradle. Sweet. Yes, yeah, yeah. That is such a beautiful moment. Um, talking about contemporaneous reviews, as we did with "Adventures in Babysitting," Roger Ebert noted like several things that he did consider flaws at the time, but he wrote because of Selick and his co-stars, the movie becomes a heartwarming entertainment and he gave it a full three out of four stars, which is really great. Janet Maslin of the New York times wrote quote, this story is about four babies, not just one. Um, (laughs) But then she added the film bubbles along in a funny, if predictable way with a lot more gags than the earlier film managed. So it sounds like it was um, a funnier interpretation than the one we haven't seen by Colleen Sorrell. So, Mm -hmm. yes. Is there anything else you wanted to add about uh, Three Men and a Baby? Not that I can think of. She did go back to Colleen went back to the well, so to speak. And did a re- uh, did a sequel eighteen years later called eighteen years after with the same characters. Oh, I don't know if they were. The, I don't know if they're the same actors. You can look this up yourselves on IMDb. Uh, but um, yeah, so she did go back to doing it. So sh- her sequel interpretation varies greatly from that. And I know they had planned. Uh, back in 2010, I think it was to do Three Men and a Bride with okay. these same characters. Oh, I remember um, hearing about that. Yes. But I don't know if it was somebody didn't sign on or something like that, or it just wasted away in development or whatever. But that's clearly not an option now because she would be, you know, Mary would be 34 years old and 
maybe a divorcee at this point or something. Uh, who knows? But it's Disney, so she's probably in a very happy marriage at this point. But they are going to reboot it uh, as a Disney Plus uh, movie. I read uh, the articles last year, so who knows where it is yeah. in this stage of development. But uh, starring Zac Efron, so we'll see. Yeah, we will see for sure. Well, our next film, I know, is another one of your particular favorites. Director Stephen Herrick's follow-up to the cult favorite hit, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's another cult favorite from 1991. It is Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which is the most MTV-ready of this trio. A modest hit when it was released, but one that has led to a devoted following on home entertainment, starting with video, which is where I know I first saw it. The film, which screenwriters Neil Landau and Tara Eason, is it Eason? Eason? I'm not sure. Okay, Tara Eason first wrote in the mid-1980s and called The Real World, was inspired by the idea of a high schooler thrust into adulthood as seen in the film Risky Business, but nowhere near as dark as that one. Despite its eventual title, Married with Children star Christina Applegate is absolutely marvelous here. As a stylish 17-year-old who finds her dream of a summer of freedom interrupted when she hears that her mom hired a stubborn old taskmaster babysitter for not just her younger siblings, but she and her stoner twin brother played by Adventures in Babysitting's Keith Coogan as well. Given another cruel reality check, however, when the old lady dies almost as soon as she arrives, Applegate and her siblings decide that rather than call their mom to come home for the summer from where she is with her boyfriend in Australia, she will just get a job and take care of the kids herself. Disgusted by the fast food industry after she finds herself up to her elbows and grease and fat bats, but luckily, however, with a date with the cute Josh Charles, she copies an impressive resume out of a book and lands a job as the executive assistant in the garment industry and finds her passion featuring David Duchovny in a small role. It is a cute, vibrant film that works as well as it does, I think, because of Christina Applegate, who with her wine necklaces, cuff bracelets, wine colored lipstick, Onyx garnet, marcasite earrings, peasant blouses, high-waisted olive trousers, black shoe boots, and more is an icon of the early 90s fashion scene that I love. And that's even before the movie culminates in a neon-heavy fashion show as well. So what are your thoughts on this one? I loved this from, like, the get-go. I saw it theatrically at, like, with my aunt at like oh, a dollar wow. theater um we were i was like on vacation or something and uh we went and it was great i loved it and it just i don't know i've loved it ever since so i, I was lucky enough to see it theatrically i bought the soundtrack i still have the cassette tape um it's oh, so great so cool. the music is so good um the way it's timed in the movie is so good too um but yeah over the years I love hearing the stories from people about this people who uh from the writers they've done a few uh Q&As about it and uh also Keith Coogan again 
in this, um, excellent in this, uh, has also done a few Q and A's as well and spoken about, you know, stuff like, uh, one of the fun connections, one of the fun stories he tells, and I really wish it was him telling the story, but, um, he had to wear a wig in the movie to play Kenny, the stoner brother. I and wondered if that was a wig. Okay. Yeah, it was a wig. So he had to go to this like famous wig shop in Burbank. And as he's sitting there in the chair, like getting this wig made, he and Joanna Cassidy had to wear wigs for this. So he's sitting there in the chair and he's looking around the room at all these pictures on the wall. And he sees his grandfather, Jackie Coogan, had also gotten his toupees made at the same place. Oh, so, I love that. So there's a weird, like, circular, familial sort of connection there. I thought that was so cool to learn. <laughs> that is very cool. I always forget that that's Jackie Coogan's grandson every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. And he had originally um, gone out for the part, the Josh Charles uh, that Josh Charles got as the love interest, but he literally mid audition left the place, went to his car, threw on some like rock and roll clothes and came back into the casting director's office and starts doing this act. That's very like Kenny like. And so they were like, that's it. You're Kenny. You're the, you're the stoner guy. So boom. So that's how he got that. I love that in both movies, he was meant to play the other part or started auditioning and then got a different part. It's such a Hollywood story. And (laughs) yeah, I can't imagine the roles that he played by anyone else. So I think Mm -hmm. that's perfect. Um, One interesting thing is this movie usually in reviews gets called like, oh, it's like Home Alone. I think the poster even at the top has like Home Alone yeah. times five or some cheesy, yeah. you know, pull quote like that. And it's not, not it's at all. not. And the working girl aspect. And when I was reading um, like comments from the screenwriters, they're like, we wrote this movie in the early 80s, like after we saw Risky Business and we're thinking mm-hmm. about that. And we were like, this is before working girl was a thing. And uh, I think that's also very important. It is, um, Ebert called it a consumerist escapist fantasy for teenage girls. And it is consumerist, I think sometimes, um, but he was slightly more positive than some of his contemporaries at the time. I think a lot of times when it is a film anchored by a teenage girl in particular, people Mm -hmm. come down a little bit harder than they do the coming of age movies with teenage boys. And so I think sometimes um, these movies get the brunt of that. But, you know, with time, people have fallen in love with it. It also is just such a love letter to Christina Applegate, who is so good here. And I guess she found out about the project because of Ed O'Neill. Yeah. Married with Children had, I don't know how he had gotten the script or whatever, but he He knew a Sorry, he knew oh, a producer. Uh, so yeah, I know, because um, I watched a Q and A with the writers. Oh, cool. They had talked about it. They had pictured, but never cast Winona Ryder um, in that. the role originally. But then the IMDb uh, trivia is incorrect on this, and said, "Oh, they went out to her, but they didn't." Um, it was she was just pictured as the role. But then yeah. it wound up at Fox, and Justine Bateman was sort of cast, but. It was developed, but then it went into turnaround. And so one of the producers knew Ed O'Neill, and it was Ed who sort of 
gave it to Christina. But even before then, I think there was another sort of uh, necessary story that people should should listen to, especially if you're writers, um, that the screenwriters had told about how they had gone through a few agents uh, in this process. And mm. one of their agents, when they originally wrote the script, had said, don't show this to anybody. This is terrible. Like this will end your career. Oh, wow. And so they took that to heart and they put it in the closet and sort of forgot about it for, you know, months and months and months until um, at the time Neil um, was friends with or school chums with uh, David Kep, who wasn't the David Kep, you know, legacy that we know. But of course, he's a hugely talented writer. Um, and director yes. amongst his own right, but um, he wasn't that quite yet, but he asked, he was, you know, Neil was talking to him about it and David said, well, where is that script? And I'd, I'd like to read it. And Neil's like, oh, we were told it was terrible. And he was like, well, who told you that? And he said, the agent, he's like, well, let me, let yeah, me take a read. And then he know. read it. And then like <laughs> later that night, he was like, this is really good. You should definitely pass this around town. This is great. Like, I don't know what that person's talking about. So you should never really listen to anybody else except for your own sort of like your own inner voice with these things. So mm -hmm. don't get too discouraged or you might have something that really speaks to people later on in life, you know? Exactly. And it goes back to what you said at the beginning when you were talking about, uh, you know, if the executives are having problems with their family at home, mm -hmm. like you're going to have a bunch of failing dad movies. It just, you know, trends change. I read that Lando was kind of um, bummed by the direction the film took. Mm -hmm. I guess it was a bit darker originally. And, you know, you can see that a little bit, but I think it's great. Uh, they're two very talented writers. They did a lot of other uh, cool work. They worked on Doogie Howser, MD. I remember mm -hmm. that show very well. Um, Melrose Place. Um, even, you know, soaps like The Young and the Restless. Um, Tara uh, Eisen, which again, mm -hmm. I apologize if I'm saying that incorrectly. Um, also... Let's see, looks like wrote for the TV show Ace Ventura Pet Detective, which was an interesting uh, little twist there. I think they really tap into the 90s. Uh, it's, it's just a great one. It shows what uh, Christina Applegate can do and also how important it is to cast your movies well, I think. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to Adventures in Babysitting and also the three men and a baby just cast it well and you know they can elevate even the most average film uh the script they can just elevate it and make it sing and make it far more entertaining than you would imagine i think yeah yeah i mean the cast is really great like yes like the girl who plays Melissa is really great. Like they had originally cast Jennifer Love Hewitt in her part, but then Jennifer couldn't get out of her contract at Kids Incorporated. So they had. Uh, so interesting. Then, so then Danielle Harris comes in and like knocks it out of the park as like this sassy tomboy. You know, I love her kicking the, the chore stand as she's like going to confront the babysitter that they find you know, in a few mm -hmm. minutes dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so good. Yeah. And just, bottom, it's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of these bit players, like you have Kimmy Robertson, who was yeah. on Twin Peaks. Everybody loved. 
Um, we She's so caught. sweet in this movie. Like, I hope, yes. I, I, you know, I hope, I hope she gets the assistant. Like, of all these years, I've hoped that she gets the assistant job after uh, Sue Ellen's sort of unmasking. <laughs> yeah, she knows how to know. do the GPS reports. Yeah, and oh my gosh, John Getz was always playing kind yes. of like um, sleazy roles of this mm-hmm. era. You know, he was also the the. Uh, sleazy boyfriend and curly sue at the time he's perfect here he is just great i also really like joanna cassidy as rose who's kind of the mentor figure for christina mm-hmm. applegate at work i thought she was just very charming and so good so bubbly and i love yeah. that her character like sort of makes everything about every business meeting is about what food they're gonna eat so it's like <laughs> the naked shrimp is to die for and like we're i'm gonna sit the superintendent down over a plate of eggs florentine and it's like why do, it's so why specific yeah i know why do we need to know these details but i think she's just overcompensating for like mm-hmm. she works at this industrial clothing factory which is so boring and like but she's this fabulous like woman of luxury and like yeah you know so i think she's i think it speaks to her like overcompensating a little bit but Joanna like carries this off so well and she's so bubbly and like fun her laugh is so cute as Rose Mm -hmm. it's like this guttural thing that she does it's great (laughs) yes an underrated thing I love in movies is hearing uh, people's genuine laughter which is Mm -hmm. so true here and Franklin too Franklin was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and uh, also Carrie. familiar. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. And so like, he's so sweet there. Like whenever Sue Ellen comes down and says hi to Franklin, it's like, Oh, Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He becomes all these little players become favorites. I also like that. She's not manipulating these people. That's another mm-hmm. thing. I think True. that's important about this era. I think sometimes today when we make movies for young adults, they're way too cynical or giving people a hard time or kind of joking behind their back. And like, I was talking to somebody about Wayne's world because it's going to be 30, I think. Mm-hmm. soon. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about, yeah, they kind of made jokes about certain things, but deep down they were okay people. And I love that about uh, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Like she is friendly with Franklin or somebody you wouldn't really expect a 17 year old girl to gravitate to or Rose, or she listens to these people. She's not just playing them, which I think is a nice distinction. That's and they learned, part. yeah, sorry. And they learned to like, you know, she's got this sort of you know, antagonistic, you know, relationship with her brother where they they get along, but it's not well. And then by the end of the movie, they're like, really, they've learned to get along and the whole family comes together to support this common cause. And I think that was so unique and different for films about kids at the time and for like, you know, the whole like, and sort of the impetus for why these rotors rotors why these writers wrote the film as to show kids as capable and they learn stuff and like i don't it seemed like she stops i think sue ellen stopped smoking too Um, i did notice that at the beginning of the movie she's seldom without a cigarette yeah and smoking in front of her mom too which is like are you kidding no yes (laughs) yeah so by the end of the movie she's not so it's like 
it's subtle subtle, little things. Yep. Subtle little things in there. And it's just filled with so many genuine moments. Like I love it when she tells off the boss, the toxic perky boss, uh, and then dragging the line like comes in and it's like this empowering leads into this empowering like montage sequence of her like fudging the resume and creating her look and like mm-hmm. going through the pages of magazines that she ripped out I think unconsciously like that this movie has affected me because I do that to this day oh, ripping I pages out of have. magazines yeah yeah so like to like create the look and I also love the whole like the the scene in Toys R Us between Sue Ellen and oh yeah when they're yeah. around on that and Brian, yeah and they're bouncing around on the thing and it's got this like bright you know song yeah, high key it. lighting and yeah you know. yeah it's so sweet so there's like all these like genuine moments packed in there that I I didn't expect to see in sort of a teen reflected in a teen hijinks movie but we're there. Yeah, and I think it's kind of nice, too, going back to her being a, a genuine character and a sweet character mm-hmm. uh, when they get when the kids get stranded in the car belonging to the dead babysitter <laughs> is stolen. I love that scene. It's like, well, who can they call to get home? And they call, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, Josh Charles in his truck, uh, the mm-hmm. chili dog guy. And or is it clown dog? Yes. Clown dog. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, you know, her siblings want to make fun of it, essentially. But, you know, she just has to suck it up. And also, you know, he's super cute. He's Josh Charles. So it's a great. Mm -hmm. And it also like it retains these small moments of like when she's, you know, figuring out like how to navigate in the adult world. It retains these moments of just like naivete in her character, like when she's out to lunch with Gus. Uh, with smarmy Gus, like mm-hmm. she's ordering the martini and she doesn't quite know how to do it. So yeah, it's like sweet or dry. And she's like a little bit of both. It's like really speaks <laughs> that she doesn't really know what she's doing in this world, but it's yeah, just, it's-, it's funny and it's endearing and it's a well-earned moment. It really is. I remember that was when I learned like that martinis were supposed to be sweet or dry because I think it was my parents when I watched this with them they, they laughed hard and then kind of explained the joke but it's also the movie that taught me what Vassar was because that <laughs> becomes a yeah a line she was typing <laughs> this resume turns yeah. it in without even really you know absorbing what she typed and well you're a Vassar girl for, and, for God's sake you're a Vassar gal and she yes. like has this look in her eyes like did I write that and she looks down at the paper like Oh my God, I did write that. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, such a fun movie. Well, obviously we chose just three to discuss, but there are so many more, including some that we mentioned today. But are there any others you want to specifically tell listeners to seek out other babysitting movies of this type? I wouldn't say other babysitting movies, but um, I will loop it back around to what I was talking about before of movies that I saw last year that I liked, but really didn't get much play. Stephen Herrick, uh, the director of Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter's Dad, also did Life of the Party, which is on Netflix. And it starts out a certain way and you think it's just a silly little like vapid rom-com kind of a thing. Uh, But it turns into this really deep, like meaningful film about friendship and, you know, families and, you know, being a good person. And it's 
made me cry. Like I was weeping at the end and I was like, I did not expect this at all. So I would say watch that. (laughs) Yeah. I'll have to look for that. And yeah, if you're also listening and wondering which films you might've missed, maybe you're younger and didn't grow up in this era that Courtney and I did watching all of these movies. I would also say to seek out baby boom, which is one of my favorites. My goodness. Diane Keaton is marvelous. You have Sam Mm Shepard. You also have James Bader in one of his smarmy roles, which is always fun. Um, Uncle Buck is a good one. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're talking Chris Columbus, you also have to bring up again, Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, Houseboat is one that I watched earlier uh, in 22. Like uh, maybe it was one of the first new days because I'd recorded it on TCM. I'd seen it before, but it had been too long. Very Mm -hmm. cute movie. Bachelor Mother is another favorite, a good one to watch for Christmas or New Year's uh, with Ginger Rogers. So there are all kinds of them for this subject. And I'm going to have to look for Life of a Party, though, because that sounds great. Yeah, it's not a babysitting movie, but no, it is but a Stephen Herrick movie. Stephen so Herrick. It <laughs> We're linking it together. It totally counts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Courtney, I want to thank you so much for doing this, for letting me like monopolize your entire afternoon. But I had so much fun. Oh my God. It was a pleasure. I could literally go on for like six hours each of these, like with each of these movies. <laughs> we could have done like an episode just on each specific film. Absolutely. Honestly, it would become like an episodic thing, like a giant sort of yeah. podcast explaining yeah. the ins and outs and like all these movies we grew up yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I sure hope you come back to the show anytime you have an idea, just hit me up. But I would love that. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a blast. It was a lot of fun. I would come back in a heartbeat. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research, equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.